Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We will be broadcasting uh, from Hamilton City Hall tonight with our election coverage starting at 7 o'clock, an hour before the polls close. And uh, we'll be right with you until, uh, well, we know where all the races are going to be and who's going to be the mayor of this city. Uh, And that's a pretty interesting race. But let's uh, focus on Election Day, as we should be on a day like this. Uh, Municipal elections, uh, of course, always important. And uh, we have so many questions, and I'm not so sure we have so many answers about what's going on. We'll certainly get some of those after 8 o'clock tonight when the polls close. And as I mentioned, we'll be down there. Our CHML news team is uh, spread right across the city. Uh, covering the key races, and across the bay as well. The Burlington race, especially the race for mayor in that city, we're told is very tight. Joining us at our CHML election desk uh, at Hamilton City Hall tonight will be John Best, who, of course, is the publisher of the Bay Observer, who has covered politics on both sides of the bay for a long time. John uh, hops in here right now to give us a, a preview of what we might expect today. John, uh, thanks. Uh, happy Election Day, and uh, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, it's a wonderful day in the neighborhood, that's for sure. Well, I guess the first question is, uh, given what has happened in past elections, I mean, four years ago, if we can go back that far, a federal election was a change election. Uh, The provincial election certainly was a change election here in Ontario back in the springtime. And even some of the municipal elections we've seen across the country, uh, including significantly the one in Vancouver over the, uh, the weekend, again, a change election. They have a new mayor there. Uh, do those winds of change blow through Hamilton and Burlington today? Well, I, I think it, I think it is uh, going to be a change election. Now, it doesn't mean that uh, I'm not predicting the outcome. I'm just saying that I think there is a, a strong mood for change uh, in Hamilton and uh, in Burlington uh, as well. And, you know, part of that uh, arises from the fact that we have vacancies on council, so we know we're going to have new faces. Uh, in both councils. In, in both councils, that's right. I mean, Burlington is actually uh, going to have probably half uh, of its council change, which is uh, pretty significant. But uh, we, we have uh, four new faces for sure here in Hamilton. And and I think regardless of the outcome and regardless of the LRT issue, I think the new council, I think, is going to know that the public uh, was engaged and uh, we're looking for, not looking for business as usual. And yeah, and when we talk about change, I'm glad you made that clarification. I don't necessarily know if that means there's going to be changes in, in the mayor's position in either one of these cities. But but certainly there's there's a mood for change and 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 it's unusual to see that I mean there's usually at this time of, of an election John we're talking about apathetic voters I'm not hearing a whole lot of apathy out there no uh, a tremendous amount of engagement uh, I uh, uh, I know Vito's uh, group yesterday held a kind of a town hall pep rally uh, an electronic uh, telephone rally and uh, they were saying that at one point. Uh, there were 22,000 people participated, uh, listened in for part of it, and and there were periods where there were up to 10,000 people on the line at one time. Uh, I guess that's replacing what we, you know, the old political rallies, which people don't even stage them uh, much anymore because they're worried that there won't be a decent turnout. But here's, uh, you know, 10,000 or 20,000. I mean, that's a huge number of people sitting on a Sunday afternoon with football going on and all sorts of stuff going on, uh, listening to a political conversation. It's an interesting change, I think, and an interesting dynamic in how campaigns are actually managed and run these days. Social media certainly plays a big part in that, but you don't see 
uh, the bombastic, uh, as you said, rallies, or, or maybe even as much of, of the advertising as you see. They seem to focus an awful lot on social media, and uh, I guess nothing beats the old-fashioned, let's go door-to-door and talk to people. Still works, uh, you know, uh, and even beyond that, uh, standing on a busy street corner with signs and waving is, is still still effective. Uh, people are driving along, and uh, traffic is bumper to bumper, and you're, you know, so you have time to sort of uh, take it all in and, and contemplate it. But this, this election in Hamilton, and to some degree in, in Burlington as well, this is the most Americanized election I can remember. Uh, where you know advertising where the opponent is named and you know that's that's very American style and you know really sharply focusing on the issue uh, uh, you know a, a, a less nuanced uh, approach it it really felt like a you know the kind of electioneering that that we see uh, every night if we're watching uh, NBC News or something like that and you see those local uh, congressional con- uh, commercials on the air and how how blunt they are and. I guess that's uh, found its way to Hamilton. Well, and and frankly, on the other side, we know that the the mayoral race in Burlington has been very controversial because of some of the uh, things that have been said and some of the things that have been distributed in that election. And and you're right. I mean, we're Canadians, right? So we, we you know we, we usually just say you know vote for me and here's my platform. Uh, but now it's taking a shot at the opposition and and saying look, don't just vote for me, but don't vote for me, that guy because blah 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 or that woman, whatever the case might be. It it does take a personal tone. Well, and uh, certainly, if if I can speak to my own uh, experience, uh, low those many years ago, uh, if you want to get elected uh, to council, um, you have to uh, just presenting a positive alternative to the incumbent uh, isn't going to work. You you have to make the incumbent the issue uh, if you're going to be successful, and that's that's the reality. And it's just in this election, it seems so much more. Uh, in-your-face kind of thing, but I, I think it's been effective. In Burlington, it's it's a little different because they really, to be honest, they really don't have much in the way of media there. Uh, so uh, the social media take on a on a huge impact uh, in Burlington, and that's what we're seeing. Uh, you know, right up until this week, uh, we saw the uh, these posts that were going on uh, the social media around Marianne Mead Ward's candidacy. Uh, some pretty nasty stuff and uh, very much un-Burlington-like, I thought. There are some sub-stories here that we're going to probably cover through the course of the evening tonight. Obviously, Hamilton-Burlington is going to be our main focus. Uh, Alex Pearson is going to pop in and join us for a little while, of course, uh, covering the election in Toronto. Uh, I don't know that there's much of a controversy there about who the mayor is going to be. I think John Tory has a pretty significant lead there, but uh, Jennifer Kiesman's run a pretty interesting campaign and, and certainly presented an alternative. I don't know if it's enough there. Uh, but a, another name from the past, John, will pop up tonight, Patrick Brown, who's uh, trying to make a political comeback. He's running for mayor in Brampton, and I hear he's got a pretty good shot at it. Yes, uh, I saw yesterday that he had uh, he was predicting, uh, or not predicting, but they were suggesting that he did have a slight lead in a poll there. And uh, that's kind of interesting because uh, the, the mayor, uh, Brenda Jeffries, uh, was elected uh, four years ago on a reform ticket. Uh, they had had a lot of problems with, uh, I don't know exactly what you'd call it, but there was a, uh, there was a sense that there was uh, kind of a political corruption that crept into uh, municipal politics there, and that uh, not only council but staff, the whole place was kind of... Uh, needing a, a good airing out, and and so she was elected on that uh, 
uh, ticket, and um, they went through one of the, the biggest mass firings of staff that uh, one could imagine. I think 50 people got tossed out. So it was a huge investment in severance pay. Uh, all of that, and then here we are four years later, and the reformer is uh, in the fight of her life to, to hang on to her job. Interesting to see some of these uh, stories about others trying to make political comebacks and some, as you mentioned, trying to hang on to their jobs. It all hinges, John, as we've always talked about, about voter turnout, uh, which is usually quite low. I mean, there have been some anomalies to that in the last little while, but uh, it's it's always, uh, I think, a very strong point of concern for everybody who covers these municipal elections especially. Uh, but Oftentimes, when we've seen a spike, such as it is with, with voter turnout, it's because there's been a wedge issue, a ballot box issue. And I think both Hamilton and Burlington have those issues this time around. They do indeed. Uh, certainly in Hamilton, we I believe the, uh, uh, the advance poll was up almost 19% from last time. If that were to translate into the, the actual vote uh, in, in uh, today, we'd be looking at a turnout getting closer to 40% than the 34% we had last time. And uh, with the race that's going on in Burlington, if people aren't engaged there, uh, I, I don't know what it would take to get them energized because uh, they, have a, they have a real race going on. They've got new faces. Um, they've got a, a really uh, interesting mayoralty race uh, where, again, Rick Goldring is, uh, appears to be in the fight of his life to, to hang on to that job. Um, you know, he's sort of been accused of, uh, of you know, allowing rampant development. I'm, I'm not sure that the charge is completely fair, to be honest, but uh, he's wearing it. it. That's a three-team race, too, a three-person race, rather. I, I know that you and I talked last week. We haven't heard a whole lot about Mike Wallace, who's a former city councilor and former MP for that area. Uh, but And I haven't seen any polling data from Burlington, although I have talked to some folks that are keeping an eye on that. And they, they tell me that three-way race is a lot closer than a lot of people think. Well, I think so, because uh, the, the thing with Burlington is the, the, the Burlington that most of us are familiar with is essentially downtown Burlington. So it's uh, in Burlington uh, parlance, that's Wards 1 and Ward 2. Ward 2 being the downtown ward, that's uh, Marianne Mead Ward's current, uh, where, where she serves as a counselor. So you'll, you'll see tremendous visibility for her campaign in Ward 2. Uh, and, and if you try to extrapolate that, I'm not sure it works. Uh, especially with Burlington, there's that whole vast part of Burlington that's north of the QEW that's more Toronto-oriented, and, and who knows what people are thinking up in that area. Uh, that's not the part of Burlington that most of us drive through. And, uh, you know, there may be a, a totally different picture going on in those northern wards, which are uh, also very densely populated with subdivisions. Well, exactly. And, and again, I think it's the same general issue from what I've heard. And, and that, of course, is how are we going to grow? Uh, and there's some concerns, but obviously it's a different approach uh, north of the QEW than it is in the older part of the town and the downtown areas. And I think, I think we all know what the, the, the ballot box issue is on this side of the bay. Yeah, and, and with that growth issue in Burlington, uh, you know, those of us that have been around for a while, will, it, it, it isn't just the provincial government's places to grow policies that have created all this high-rise um, uh, fervor in, in Burlington. Uh, successive Burlington councils going back into the 80s 
uh, made a conscious decision that they were going to uh, put hard boundaries on the city and they weren't going to be sprawling up into the north. And, and so that's why there's virtually nothing north of Dundas Street. And, uh, you know, it, it wasn't just the provincial government's more recent intervention. Uh, th- this has been coming for a long time in Burlington. Well, and, and that's going to be the issue, obviously, and how they're going to manage that and how they're going to address some of the concerns, uh, not just in the downtown area, but even, as you say, north of the QEW as well. Uh, what about LRT? We've got a couple of minutes left here. And I, I know I don't want to get into the pros and cons on this. As I no, mentioned in my God, commentary no. earlier this morning, I'm getting tired of hearing it, too. Let's just, you know, put this thing to bed one way or another. But uh, it, 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 is it going to drive people to the ballot box today? I think it will. Uh, I really do. I think the advanced polls suggest there's greater interest, and uh, usually that translates into the into the main vote. Uh, you know, a 19 percent uh, increase in turnout. I, I think it's indicated. I I certainly think the uh, the campaign uh, that Vito Scro has uh, run uh, has made the issue as plain as any issue I can think of uh, has ever been made. Uh, some may argue that you know that it was a a one issue campaign, but uh, uh, I think Vito uh, said yesterday uh, that it, it is a one issue campaign in the sense that uh, so many of the other issues like housing and and just the overall infrastructure hinge on the decision that's made around LRT. But you know if if this campaign hasn't polarize people on the LRT issue, then nothing will. It's, it's the most, uh, I've, I've never seen, even the Red Hill debate in the stadium, uh, neither uh, it carried the same kind of explicit sort of messaging that this LRT debate has. I've got a minute left here. Uh, let's talk about endorsements, dueling endorsements. And, and I noticed that on social media over the weekend from the two main contenders, both Fred Eisenberger and Vito Scrow. Do they really matter? I mean, does that really switch somebody's vote to say, well, so-and-so's endorsing them, so I guess that means I will? I I don't think it would make uh, a a vote switch take place, but what it does do, I think, is energize your supporters. So if if this race is about um, who can get their vote out, uh, and, and the last poll we saw suggested it was a very close race, uh, where you know vote, voter turnout and getting out your vote is is so important. Then I think the endorsements energize your your base, and uh, to that you know they they create a, a bit of a sense of momentum um, and make people more likely to go out and vote for the candidate that that they were probably going to vote for anyway. So in that regard, it helps. But to actually change a mind, I don't think so. It's going to be an interesting night tonight, isn't it? Sure is. Uh, and by the way, because of the way votes are counted in, in municipal elections here in Hamilton, we'll get the results pretty quickly. We'll be at City Hall. Uh, the winners will be there. Some of the losers may pop in from time to time, and we'll talk with all of them. John, look forward to working with you tonight. Yeah, it should be an interesting evening, Bill. You bet. John Best, uh, publisher of the Bay Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. One of the things that you will determine with your vote today on Election Day here in Ontario is uh, how your city is going to be built and how it's going to continue to be built in the future. And uh, although there are different issues in different communities, we talked about LRT, obviously, here in Hamilton, and and, uh, development uh, in the downtown core Burlington is two of the key issues, there are some commonalities uh, that you can look at right across the board that uh, you as a voter should be concerned about and should weigh, I think, heavily when you decide who's going to get the X uh, on your ballot 
Uh, and to talk about uh, some of those common issues and, and how they're going to impact different communities, uh, pleased to welcome back to the program Barry Kay, political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University. Barry, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill. Listen, and now we're at Election Day. At, at what point do voters start to clue into what's important to them during a municipal election? Well, I'm afraid some never do. Uh, turnout, <laughs> turnout in uh, in municipal elections is uh, is much lower than it's not terrific federally and provincially, but at least people have the party as a cue. Uh, municipally, it's much more challenging for people to kind of connect between issues. It's not that they don't have real concerns, but they don't necessarily know how to express those concerns in favoring uh, one particular candidate over another. Uh, I would like to think that they're probably the last week or so, there's probably been a little more attention in the local press, and those that want to um, want to get involved will do so. But um, typically, uh, <clears throat> we're seeing turnout in the range of maybe under one and three. So to think that there's widespread attention and widespread commitment, at least in most elections. Uh, I'm afraid that's uh, that's just not the case. This the story I always heard for ten years. I was on municipal council, and and even now on this program for the number of years I've been doing this, it, it seems to me as if the number one thing you hear at the door if you're campaigning is taxation. You know, what are you going to do to lower my taxes? Uh, which is obviously, I guess, the clarion call for everybody, you know, because nobody thinks they pay uh, a, a proper amount of tax. It's always way too high. But that is the challenge for just about every local council, isn't it, Barry, to try to do the things you need to do and at the same time keep the cost down? Uh, tax, taxes are chronic. Um, it's been true as long as I've had any political awareness. I'm sure it's been true for forever. People always think they're paying more. There are other issues, and that's certainly something. Your, your introduction was the commonality of the different uh, the different municipalities around the province and how they're affected. That's something everybody's going to be talking about. Uh, still, uh, being able to con- for voters to connect the, the the goal of lower taxes, at least for them, with reality is is is, is challenging. Though, look, there are connect commonalities beyond that, though. And we're seeing certainly in urban southern Ontario, and that would include the GTA, Hamilton, the Kitchener-Waterloo area where I am, uh, there are increasing problems that are are becoming more and more chronic and that we're hearing more and more. One is clearly transportation, uh, getting around in your automobile, and the the, the kind of tension there is between public transit, such as the LRT in Hamilton, um, and and automobile transportation, and whether how much cities with the assistance sometimes of the provincial government, uh, how much cities are prepared to, to go in to subsidize public transit so that people will be less dependent upon driving their cars because driving their cars into the middle of town creates other kinds of issues as well. So that's one kind of issue. It's also, I guess, related that that's, in a sense, kind of infrastructure as well. But housing, housing is it. The cost of housing, again, I'm originally from Toronto, although I live in KW now, but uh, the, the cost of housing anywhere around, it's not just Toronto or Hamilton, it's, it's throughout this whole area are, are spreading, um, particularly for people the lower end economically. So that's got implications for public housing or social housing, as it's sometimes known. And, and how the different uh, councillors, the different candidates are prepared to, uh, to trade off those, those choices. Making public policy is really a matter of making choices. Ideally, everybody would have all the services they need and they wouldn't have to pay taxes for it, but that's just not reality. So the, what the council is there to do is basically make choices, whether they're going to favor this particular interest or that, whether they're going to put housing or make housing more affordable here rather than there. It's horrendous in Toronto, but frankly, it's not much better in Hamilton now or, or in, in Kitchener-Waterloo, and I suspect in most other, other communities either, uh, as people more and more just cannot afford to live, even if they're working in the GTA, can't afford to live there and are moving further away into Milton and Guelph and so forth and all the other surrounding communities, Oakville, Burlington areas closer to you, Brantford. Um, that, that, that this is a problem that isn't going away. In fact, it's getting worse. So that's certainly the kind of thing people are going to ask their councillors about. 
But at the municipal level, we do not have a, the party kind of system where there's kind of a, a group responsibility. It's not that at the federal and provincial level, um, the government always gets problems solved anyways. They're, frequently, they don't. But there is a sense of collective responsibility, and that's something that parties provide. Municipally, uh, you're voting for one alderman or one councillor, whatever they're to be called, or a mayor in your particular municipality, and you're hoping that they will be able to interact with the others sufficiently to be able to at least ameliorate, if not solve, the, the particular problems that are involved. But, look, housing and, um, and transit are... Are, are, are enormous problems, and the bigger the city, the worse it is. So Hamilton's not quite as bad as Toronto, but Hamilton's, I'm sure, worse than a lot of the other places that we're talking about as well. And those two topics are very tight, tightly tied together, too, aren't they? I mean, as, as housing becomes less affordable, people have to move further and further away from the city center, which means that transportation becomes that much more important to them. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, building expressways tends to have impact on budgets, but also on neighborhoods, sometimes encroaching on them, and where are the cars going to get parked if you're going that way, or whether more and more money is going to go into, um, in, into public, uh, public transit buses and LRT. Um, and among the trade-off issues are, are whether parking is going to be available and how expensive parking is going to be. There are ways that cities can try to discourage people from driving by raising the cost of um, of, uh, of not so much transit, but raising the cost of parking. Uh, but that discourages people as well. And again, it's a matter of which groups are you going to favor at the expense of which other groups. Look, something else, it's, it's an issue, I don't know if it's as big a deal in Hamilton as it is um, around here, but bicycles. People, oh, sure. People want bicycle lanes now because that's an alternative if the city isn't, isn't too big for, for getting around. And that too encroaches upon cars. So something that uh, seven, eight years ago we wouldn't have even thought of as a particular organized interest group, but whether or not there should be dedicated bicycle lanes and the impact that that's going to have on traffic. That's, that's a brand new one that's just being added into the mix of tensions of the among, among different interest groups. Oh, it's, it's been very polarizing and very controversial here uh, because, I, I, I mean, I hear constantly from people say, look at the car, they, the streets were made for cars, not for bikes. And if, no, they're for transportation, but some people can't seem to get their head around that, and especially in some of the, the main centers here, the, some of the main streets, Main Street, King Street, places like that. And I, uh, it's it's really become a problem in, in this community. rather. Listen, i got to ask you about something else, because obviously you know that there's a, a great deal of tension here about the LRT, even though the past council, quote-unquote, approved it. Uh, the fact that Doug Ford says you can do whatever you want with the money if you don't want to build LRT, that's really kind of fueled the debate here again. And and we're all looking up in your community right now, Barry, to KW, uh, both the pro and the con side. Basically, they can find supporters up there to say, see how great LRT is, look what's going on in KW. And, the, and even the con side are saying, see how it's ruined the downtown? It's, nobody can get around anymore. Everybody's complaining. Is, is there still a debate going on there? I know, you know the, ro- the project is continuing right now, but, but I don't get any sense at all, especially up in KW, that the issue has been resolved and everybody's just dealing with it now. Well, the commitment's been made. I mean, yeah. for, for better or worse in the minds of many, we're stuck with it. Um, you know, and uh, actually another example is really what's, how Toronto is being transformed by yeah. the, the equivalent of LRT uh, in, in different parts of that city. Uh, but you're, you're right. There are people that are happy with it, people that are perhaps less dependent upon autos. Just, uh, you know, because the, the notion of autos versus public transit, again, has been a, a chronic debate for many, many years. That's not new. Um, the existence of LRT means that, in fact, that a lot of roadways are being narrowed. That in fact, um, that, and you've got these sort of in much much of the city of Kitchener, you've got dedicated lanes uh, for the transit. In other places, it sort of goes over roadways. Um, it's not even fully in place yet, but the discomfort and the um, the, the challenges of of the the construction of, are certainly with us. So there's plenty of people that are unhappy with it, even though it's here. And the, you know, the debate of uh, are we are not are we gonna, going to or are we not that one's over. Um, but there's still people on both sides of the issue. I think it does facilitate. Um, 
getting to work for people that are not don't want to be dependent on their automobiles. So there's people that are happy, but there's plenty of people that are unhappy. It just happens. Kitchener Waterloo isn't quite as big a city, and indeed, it uh, for many people it probably is making it more difficult to um, to get to work. Just as it, for some people, it's making it easier to get to get to work. And I say that because it's not even in place yet, and it's still difficult for people getting to work because of the fact that. Um, uh, that the, the roadways are being challenged. But throughout Toronto, when I'm in Toronto, um, there are streets like Eglinton and further north, it's because it's coming to Finch and so forth. Uh, there are streets that I just avoid. Um, I, I never go. Now, St. Clair is the one street because that had the streetcar lanes from the old days um, and is, is really the first big, big artery to have, have a, you know, an LRT type of system in place. I just avoid uh, St. Clair Avenue like the plague. And in Toronto, where there are going to be a number of streets like that, uh, that in fact, I think you're going to see people's behavior changing in terms of where they go. I will not go to restaurants typically or not shop on St. Clair, and I'm afraid that that's going to extend to some of these other streets. Now, Hamilton and Kitchener-Waterloo, it's not as big a deal, but it's, it's, it's un- undoubtedly going to change people's atti- uh, attitudes and behavior, and there are going to, even when it's in place, uh, assuming that that goes through, that indeed there are going to be people that are happy with it and other people that aren't happy with it. Do voters generally understand that the, 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 where the lines are drawn about responsibility? Because uh, the province plays a big role in how municipalities are run, and we've talked about some of these issues like housing, uh, transportation, well, light rail transit, I guess, if that's going to be thrown in, in in any particular community. And and the province should be and has to play a part in that. Uh, but I don't know necessarily, Barry, that voters care one way or another. And I mean, if you're knocking on the door, it's your job to fix it. It doesn't matter where you know who signs the check or who, or who develops the plan. Not having a party system, it means that candidates can make all sorts of promises about what they would like to do, and they may genuinely believe that. But actually facilitating <clears throat> these compromises into public policy becomes much more challenging because there is not that sense of group pro- responsibility that if you vote liberal or conservative or NDP, that they collectively will get their act together and try to fulfill the promise, at least at those levels of government if they have a majority. In city council, it's very much one, one neighborhood versus another, one ward versus another in terms of the, of the challenges. And many candidates for office can legitimately say, even if they ran last time on a promise to do this or that, saying they wanted to do it, but they, were, they had to deal with these people from another part of town who had very different views. And unfortunately, the, the, the ability to kind of avoid any kind of group responsibility becomes a built-in excuse, and it, it's real. It's real. The fact is that city councillors don't always agree with each other. I'm less familiar with the specifics of, of Hamilton, but my guess is there's kind of a left versus right faction. The left probably wanting to see more more money go into um, programs that are going to help particularly disadvantaged neighborhoods and perhaps to to assist people that are less dependent on the car. The right typically, at least uh, being more likely to be favored in suburban areas, especially true in Toronto, but bits of it in in KW as well, who are uh, probably have constituencies where they are more dependent upon the voters, uh, the votes of automobile owners who want to be able to drive their automobile unencumbered by these other changes. And I'm afraid that's just part of municipal life in many provinces and many, excuse me, many municipalities across the province. We were talking earlier in the hour, and I wanted to get your read on this too. And this is the the winds of change metaphor that we hear constantly during elections. Uh, but there's there's a, a track record here. Obviously, if you want to go back four years, the last federal election was a change election. We changed governments. We certainly did in Ontario back in the springtime with a change of government. And we've seen sporadically, even across the country, I mean, for instance, B.C. had their elections last week, uh, and there's a new mayor in Vancouver. I mean, and we've seen this in other municipalities at the same time. Why is this propensity right now to simply say, not throw the bums out, but just to say, you know what, we got to hit reset. And, and I, I get the sense of more and more voters are starting to feel that way. 
Well, the, the concepts of reform, this isn't unique to, to municipal politics, but the idea of reform and change um, are what's referred to as substitute generics. People can put anything into the word change that they want. It can mean a move to the right, a move to the left, higher taxes, lower taxes. It can mean whatever you want. So it's natural for politicians to rely on those terms because they frankly can mean all things to all people. And that's the goal of a politician, to be all things to all people. The challenge is at some point when you overuse it, you become nothing to anybody. But, so that's the, what, so the, the idea of change and the idea of reform are certainly uh, slogans that, uh, that politicians are, uh, are, are very quick to, uh, to think about. There's something interesting. I'm not sure that it's, it's of such keen interest in, um, in Hamilton, but there are a few municipalities in, in Ontario that are now up, up toying and experimenting with the idea of electoral change. Mm-hmm. Uh, London, in fact, is moving to the ranked ballot or the preferential ballot, the idea of putting one, two, three, four, which means that instead of having more votes than anyone else when you run in your particular ward or municipality, rather, in fact, there's going to be a, in a second and third choice voting will come in for as candidates are eliminated with fewer votes. And it means somebody will, in fact, get a majority. To me, that suggests that there's probably more legitimacy, at least, for candidates that get elected. There were some wards in Toronto, not certainly not everyone, but I can think of a few wards in Toronto last time where candidates were elected because there were a lot of candidates running with, this, with less than 20% of the vote. What London has actually you know, introduced that system. Uh, Cambridge, and I think there's one or two other, King Kingston is one of the other places that have put it on the ballot. And it's a way that I'm, I'm not sure that the world is going to be that much more efficient in London or other places. But if people truly want to experiment with change and reform, that's something that at least a few municipalities in Ontario are toying with. And I think people will look to London, and if it goes through in Cambridge and perhaps in Kingston as well, to see what impact that has and whether or not it means that politicians will be more likely to um, be uh, conciliatory and much more likely to moderate their views. Because what it does when you... Don't just depend upon your own political base, but to get elected, you have to get the second and third choice of some of the opponents. It probably tends to moderate candidates' positions, and they aren't going to be quite as far left or far right or far, as much ideologically committed. I'm not sure how it's going to play. Um, it's something that's fairly new with regard to anywhere in Canada. But when we talk about change, that's certainly one kind of change that's out there. B.C., British Columbia, is also experimenting with at least that as an option as one of the... Um, because they're, they're about to have a referendum on electoral reform there. But the notion of reform and change and many of the issues we've been talking about the last few minutes are chronic. They're, they're there. The, uh, I think housing is a bigger deal now than it used to be in terms of people being unhappy as the costs have gotten so expensive. Uh, the, the gridlock, uh, particularly in the GTA, but I'm sure in the Hamilton area as well, is just getting worse and worse. And that, indeed, um, this is causing people to have more expectations of their politicians, ultimately, which I'm afraid is going to lead to disappointment, because that's inevitably what goes on. And this notion of reform and change is kind of just an ongoing circle where you throw one group to replace them with another. Uh, Certainly in in Toronto, the likelihood of a change in the mayor isn't very great, even I think there's some 34 uh, 34 candidates running for mayor of Toronto. But uh, John Tory looks like he's... um, is very likely to be returned. But this notion of being unhappy with the ins and throwing them out, which will happen eventually to all politicians, is, is just part of the uh, circle of life for political considerations, I'm afraid, in Ontario. have got two minutes left here. I want, just on the idea of voting, and you mentioned the rank balloting, and that's going to be interesting. Uh, other communities are starting to experiment with how we vote uh, and using online voting, in some cases even telephone voting. I know Burlington is doing that with online voting, and uh, talking to some friends up in the Blue Mountain, uh, Thornbury area, they have developed online voting right now. Would that increase voter turnout is to, to make it more convenient uh, to, so people don't have to get off their duffs and actually go to a polling station? 
Logically, it would seem that it would, that it would make people more likely to vote. There's something else that's done in a couple of states in the U.S., in Oregon and Washington, I think Colorado, too, where they have um, mail-in ballots, where everybody gets sent a ballot and they can mail it in. That's how they, they do the counting there. Um, at one time, I thought uh, online voting was inevitable and that was something that was going to come sooner rather than later. Unfortunately, the, the hacking that's gone on in American elections, as we've seen on, the, on behalf of the Russians, it seems, has, has tended to take the edge off of that. And I'm not sure the trouble. I'm not sure that people are going to the Russians are going to be particularly concerned with who the mayor of Collingwood is. But the, uh, nonetheless, that I think that that's put a break on that kind of issue. And until there is an ability to be able to monitor that and to eliminate it. Um, my hunch is that the the immediacy of online voting, which I, a few years ago I would have thought was coming very very soon, I think that that perhaps is going to be put on hold. It's an interesting idea. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, let me say also though that making people who already aren't all that interested in municipal politics making it easier for them to vote isn't necessarily going to lead to a a more informed, responsible electorate. And I'm not sure that the problems we've been talking about the last few minutes are going to be resolved any more effectively with online voting than they have been in the past. Barry Kay uh, at uh, Wilfrid Laurier University. Barry, thanks as always. Always great to get your perspective. You bet. Bye-bye. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Remember a few years ago during the, uh, the recession around 2009, uh, the federal and Ontario governments actually collaborated on a, uh, a basically uh, an opportunity to, to give money to the auto industry. There was a great deal of concern about the future of the auto industry. Well, the uh, federal government has now written off a $1.1 billion U.S. loan to Chrysler that includes interest, according to documents. Uh, there was no detailed explanation as to why they've done this, but it has caused a great deal of angst with a number of groups up in Ottawa. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Marvin Ryder from the uh, DeGroote School of Business, of course, business professor there at McMaster University. Good morning, Marvin. How are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you, Bill. Uh, this brought back memories of, of watching that media conference with Stephen Harper and Dalton McGinney making this joint announcement. I mean, poor Stephen Harper, of course, who's a, a guy who says, you know, no corporate welfare. Looked like he just swallowed the cat when he was doing this stuff. It, it was certainly not what he wanted to be doing there. But given the time and place, I think you and I talked about it at the time, there wasn't a whole lot of choice here, was there? No. So let, let me take you back. Remember there was this uh, recession 2007-8, hit both Canada and the United States, hit the United States harder than it did in Canada. So um, the, the conventional wisdom in the United States was that recession, 2007-8, was the worst uh, economic fallback recession since the Great Depression in the 1930s. In Canada, it only lasted three quarters. It was a more typical recession. It's taken a long time to come out of it, but it wasn't the bad thing as it was in the United States. Now, that's 2007-8. 2009, two of the car companies, General Motors and then Chrysler, both wound up in financial difficulty, uh, and they turned to governments on both sides of the border to see if they would help with some kind of a bailout. And because the auto sector is such a large part of the Canadian economy, as it is in the United States, the feeling was that government needed to come forward in some way. The total amount of money, the total amount of money that the Canadian and Ontario governments uh, uh, contributed to the bailout of both Chrysler and GM was $13.7 billion. $13.7 billion with a B, billion dollars. Um, today, I can tell you that we've gotten back at least $10 billion of that. So, you know, okay, yes, there's the good news. Uh, but why haven't we gotten it all back? Well, some of the money went to what we'll call the old General Motors and the old Chrysler who entered that uh, Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection because, in essence, what they did was they, 
they closed down the old company and created a new General Motors and a new Chrysler. And some of the money went to the new company, and some of the money went to pay to wind up the old company. Uh, in the case of General Motors, there's about 220 million, 220 million that went to old General Motors, and it was 1.1 billion that went to old Chrysler. Neither of those companies officially exist anymore. Those were closed down. And so those those loans uh, actually stayed on the books for the better part of eight, nine years. As you said, this is a Stephen Harper loan. And I don't quite know why the government didn't write them off earlier, because since these are old companies that don't exist anymore, there's no chance of getting those loans repaid. But I suppose what it was is you didn't want to take the hit, make things look any worse, because the economy is getting stronger, this might be the time now finally to write them off. And that's what they've done. The, the loans to the new General Motors and the new Chrysler, they've all been paid off with interest. We also got equity in the company. We sold that equity. We've gotten that money back out. But these are some of the remnants to the old companies, and, and we'll never see it again. And, and just to to put that back in a historical perspective, I mean, we remember the reorganization that went on, for instance, with General Motors. I mean, they killed a whole lot of product lines, uh, shut down an awful lot of dealerships. Right. So, I mean, this is trying to get blood from a stone. There's no way this money was ever going to come back into the government. But they must have known that at the time. Well, I think I think the answer was they did. Now, look, if, if it had been me personally, if it had been me personally, and I'm contributing $13.7 billion, and I know I'm not going to get back $1.7 billion, then on the remaining part, I want to generate even more of a profit to cover my loss on the part that I'm not getting back. And I think that's why a number of us uh, who, who felt maybe the governments, both in Ontario and federally, sold their shares, the equity portion, maybe just a little fast. Uh, again, I get the idea that Government has other priorities with the money, and and uh, look, uh, you know, my you know, look how good the stock is doing. Let's sell now and cash in. But I probably would have waited till I had recovered all of those losses, and then used the stock as a way to leverage it, so that there was a net uh, uh, no no impact on taxpayers. Uh, instead, what we've got here is a very old loan. There's no chance of collecting it. Why would the government hold it on its books? It's actually being held under Industry Canada. So uh, Industry Canada asked earlier this year if they could write it off. And this story actually first broke in uh, June, July of this year. Industry Canada just kind of in a one-line statement said, well, we've written off some loans. And, of course, people wanted more information, so they did the Freedom of Information request, and they got heavily redacted versions. So you knew a loan had been written off. You knew it was a loan for a large amount of money. But who it was and what was done, what have you, it wasn't clear. And this is what's resurfaced today in the story. There's another document that's been submitted to show what the loan positions are. Um, and and we, think this, we think this is the Chrysler loan that is gone. We're not actually sure what's happened to that GM loan of $220 million uh, and whether that's also being written off at the same time. But uh, it's fascinating that, uh, you know, here's a liberal government that could try to embarrass a previous conservative government. They've chosen not to release all those details. And, and what it's done is, just according to some of the stories I've read now, it's rejuvenated and, and given new life to, to this whole, I guess, ideological argument that, wow, they should never have done this in the first place. But, I mean, uh, again, had they not done this, Marvin, what would have happened to Chrysler and General Motors? Well, uh, so there's two, two aspects of that story. Uh, both General Motors and Chrysler were having problems getting financing in the general market space. So they needed some cash to do their restructuring, obviously a lot of cash to redo their restructuring. And traditional lenders like banks or other kind of debt companies said, oh, I don't know, 
I don't like the way your company is looking. I'm not sure I'm going to loan you this money or, or give you any money at all. So they were looking for a lender of last resort, and that is often where the government has to come in and say, is that a priority for us? And, and so we could say, let the market do what it wants to, and therefore we could lose jobs, we could lose these backbone companies, or we could step in. The second aspect of this was that, of course, they went to both the Canadian and the American governments. Um, and I think this would have been a problem had one side said yes, say Obama and his administration had said yes, but Canada didn't want to play ball. Well, wait a minute, you make the argument that the auto sector is important to both countries, and we talk about the seamlessness of cars going back and forth across the border. If only the United States had come up with cash, what does that actually mean about the importance of this sector for Canada? So I think from the beginning, if money was going to come from the government, it was going to have to come from both governments. And you might also remember at the time that Stephen Harper did the same sort of thing to the, the provinces, said, well, look, I don't think all the provinces should be on the hook for this. The car industry isn't that important to Alberta or Saskatchewan. So Ontario, are you prepared to step up to the table? And the answer was yes. So the Canadian contribution was split between the federal government and the Ontario government. The rest of it came from um, the United States. And here's another interesting postscript, Bill. You know, if this was now, happening now in 2018 with the Trump administration, I honestly don't know what Mr. Trump would do under this circumstance. While he's a big believer in the free enterprise system, uh, would he would he have advanced the money? Uh, they they got a sympathetic person, Obama, someone who felt he needed to demonstrate support for the Rust Belt. Uh, I don't know how Trump would react. If we had not done this, and, and as you said, if the Obama administration had come through, and, and for whatever reason, uh, the federal government here in this country did not, uh, was there a concern that uh, that operations would be shut down on this side of the border? Absolutely. So if, if uh, I'm going to contribute money, and remember, in contributing money, it was both a combination of debt and equity. With that equity, both Canada and the United States got a seat on the board. And so as the restructuring plan was going to be discussed at the board level, if only the United States would be sitting there, then they would be saying, okay, why are we even talking about restructuring Canada? Canada didn't come to the table with any money, so shut those things down, and let's keep all those car companies uh, operating just in the United States. So by having us both there, we could watch for each other's interests and, and show that it was a joint concern. I think otherwise we could have seen quite a different restructured company emerge. Well, this is a stark reminder that any time we use that phrase, the Canadian auto industry, we're really talking about Canadian versions of the U.S. auto industry, aren't we? Well, yes, uh, although, again, I'm not sure today uh, you can have one half without the other. In other words, those same American automobile companies went to Donald Trump and said, please don't put tariffs. This is going to muck up the way we do business. Things flow back and forth across that border so fluidly if you start playing around with this, it's going to cause us a big problem. So in a way, it's not Canada. In a way, it's not the United States. It really is a North American auto industry the way it's positioned today. Uh, and I would also argue, by the way, today in 2018, if we were to see the same sort of circumstances, I would expect Mexico to be at the table as well now because of the uh, uh, increased investment by those automobile companies in Mexico, I would think all three countries would be involved in any kind of a bailout. Well, because Mexico basically has been uh, given the opportunity. They, they build the smaller cars now, don't they, almost exclusively? Pretty much so, that's correct. And, and also the smaller cars that would then be, could be sent from Mexico to other parts of the world for export purposes. And, and basically, while well, we've seen this happen, especially with Ford, I mean, they're essentially into trucks and SUVs now. The, the market in North America has really shifted in the last uh, seven, eight years. Well, you know, uh, the word we like to use, Bill, is, is volatile. 
Um, when oil prices got up to $150 a barrel, as they briefly did, suddenly nobody wanted an SUV, <laughs> nobody wanted a truck because they got such bad gas mileage, and everyone started to focus on either smaller cars or hybrid cars, cars that ran on some combination of electricity and gasoline. Then gasoline prices fell to nearly $40 a barrel, and, well, <laughs> happy days are here again. We consumers can be a fickle lot, and I, I, I actually feel for the car companies to know what to build for the next year or two or five. Tell me what the oil prices are going to be, and I'd be in better shape. Even today, Bill, that's a, you know, a really open-ended question as we're watching the drama play out um, with the assassination of Khashoggi in, in Turkey. Uh, and the more the United States pressures Saudi Arabia, the more Saudi Arabia says back to the United States, well, how do you think you'd function with oil at $150 a barrel or $200 a barrel? You keep pushing on us, we may find a way to push back against you. And so, so it's still a very volatile market, and that's the situation car companies in. They try to build the cars that people want, but to know what they're going to want depends so much, I think, on the price of oil these days. The usual critics, uh, Canadian Taxpayers Federation and some others, of course, right. have all weighed in on this news story. Uh, and I think they grudgingly say, well, yeah, the, I guess the government really didn't have any choice. But the word that they had consistently talked about here is transparency. And you just mentioned that, Marvin, that when they actually finally, uh, you know, did start to release some of the details, a lot of the stuff was redacted. Why so secretive? Yeah, that's a very good question, Bill. And, and also because it is a liberal government who's saying, look, I'm, I'm tidying up the books now. If, if I just make a contrast with Doug Ford in office, any opportunity he has to make fun of Kathleen Wynne and the liberals, he does. So I'm, I'm erasing this, I'm reversing that, I'm doing something else. Here would be for the liberals actually a little chance to put a shot across Stephen Harper's borrow and say, well, we, we have to write off this bad loan that Stephen Harper made. I, I actually am surprised they're redacting it. Now, having said all that to you, because uh, the government is dabbling in commercial business, usually there are other... Uh, documents involved involving the privacy of business. In other words, um, uh, in these documents, there may be data that uh, if I'm General Motors or I'm Chrysler, I don't want my competitors knowing about. So maybe I don't want them to know the exact amount I got or what the terms were or what other collateral I may have had or other aspects that were in these loan agreements. Uh, and this is another, uh, I guess you can call it, complaint of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation that when you start playing with the private sector, you actually have to play often by their rules, which are quite contrary to government rules, which talk about transparency. And, and in this situation, we're playing now more by the, the private sector rules, which says we don't reveal all the little details because it will give our competitors an edge up. Uh, and there's one other little footnote to this too, Bill. Um, Ford never asked for money 10 years ago. Ford had done all the restructuring, painful restructuring, but on its own in advance of that slump. So when the slump happened, they were in a good position. And I've often thought Ford uh, must be going to both governments occasionally and saying, well, you know, we didn't ask you for money then, but how about how about helping us as we rebuild the Oakville factory or as we do something in in Oshawa, maybe you could find your way. Because it's really interesting, it was only two of the three companies that got money. Ford never got a dollar from the Canadian or the U.S. government. Are they in a situation right now where they have to have their hand out? Well, I don't think, I don't think they have to have their hand out, but I think, again, they like to remind them, well, we never came to you for big money there, so now can you find it in your heart to give us $20 million to help us rebuild Oakville? In comparison to the kind of money that they're on the hook for in, in um, Chrysler and General Motors' case, it doesn't seem like very much. And I'm sure, again, if I'm for it, I use that to my advantage. Marvin Ryder at the DeGroote School of Business. Marvin, thanks as always. Really appreciate the time. My pleasure, Bill. 
The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.